Hi, I'm Justin Rosso, and welcome to this episode of the Next Step Podcast, where we help you take a next step. It's also a Facebook Live book reading. This will be episode five of season four of the Next Step Podcast, where we've been reading this book, Delight, Discipleship as the Adventure of Loving and Being Loved. I'm the author, Justin Rosso, and I'm so glad to be with you today. Uh, we'll be starting in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is called Treasured Possession, and you'll see there's a daily reading plan. I'd still like to read for about 30 or 35 minutes tonight, so we'll see how far we get. We might not kind of follow the plan exactly. We might read a little bit more each night. Tonight, uh, day one, calls for us to read the two brief sections, Faithfulness to Complex Truth and Recognizing the Tension. We'll get there in just a minute. Hey, thanks for being with me. So good to see you again. We've had a good, quite a good response from these Facebook Live videos. It's great to be with you kind of in almost in person here in this kind of COVID time of social distancing. And a real joy to just to be with friends and family. So thanks for tuning in. Had a busy weekend this weekend. Uh, took the dock out. So did everybody else around this bay, uh, this part of Lake Shemung here. Uh, everybody took in their docks, so the lake looks a little bit bare, but also really beautiful. The trees have turned, the weather's turned a little bit cooler, and just about 10 minutes ago, a rainstorm blew in. So it's it's blowing rain off of the lake while I read to you. Uh, stay warm, stay snuggled up. Good, good to spend time with you today. A treasured possession is chapter 6, and if you're following along at home, I'm beginning on page 56 with the section called Faithfulness to Complex Truth. If you don't have a book yet, there's a link in the description. Be sure to pick one up for yourself. Uh, or if you've enjoyed this, maybe there's someone in your life that you'd like to give a copy to this Christmas season. Faithfulness to Complex Truth. I once got to be part of a vision process. The congregation I was serving wanted to describe who we were trying to be as a community and where we believe Jesus was taking us next. The whole conversation around vision was an awesome experience. One of my favorite core values that came out of that discovery process was called faithfulness to complex truth. I still love that. Faithfulness to complex truth was not new to that congregation, just a new way of expressing a value already had, held by a majority of the people most of the time. Naming that value didn't make us 100% faithful to complex truth 24-7, 365, but we tried. And when we failed, we had something to help us see how and why we failed. When we had to make a decision as leaders or as a congregation, faithfulness to complex truth helped inform that decision. I, vivid I vividly remember an early back and forth on the vision leadership team around that core value. One woman on the team strongly opposed the formulation faithfulness to complex truth. Truth isn't complex, she would say. Truth is simple. Jesus loves me. This I know. Why do you want to make things so complicated all the time? So we didn't adopt that value right away. We tabled that discussion until our next monthly meeting. During the course of that month, and in many of the months that followed, things got rather complex for my friend. Her story is not mine to share, except to say that she was actively trying to see where Jesus was inviting her to take a next step and then move forward in faith. 
when you pay attention to what Jesus is doing and try to respond, life can be adventurous, but seldom simple. Add to that intentional attitude of following the fact that she was a mother of teenagers, a part of a large and connected family, and a friend to sinners and pastors who mess up and hurt other people and fail in big ways and small. And you can imagine that living out dependence on Jesus, another of our core values, the one value to rule them all, dependence on Jesus got complicated pretty quickly. She came back to our next vision meeting and said, Okay, okay, truth is kind of complex. I mean, I know Jesus loves me, but man, living that out is really confusing sometimes. Knowing what to do or what to say or how to feel is hard. It would be a lot easier if we didn't hold that core value, but I'm on board. Let's add faithfulness to complex truth to the list. And can I get a little help with that, please? Of course, her statement, truth is simple, isn't wrong. The truth is simple enough to be put into a children's song. But it can also be so complex that adults can't figure it out by themselves. Both are true at the same time. Which sort of proves the point. Sometimes seemingly contradictory things are both true at the same time. In fact, the truth is probably best served by holding both sides of that tension. Truth is simple and truth is complex. And depending on the experience you're looking at or the context you're in, either of those seemingly opposite statements might help you see your life in a different light. Sometimes that happens with the Bible. Sometimes scripture presents us with two sides of the same truth, two seemingly contradictory realities. Wisdom literature does this all the time. The wisdom lies not just in the wise saying. Take Proverbs 26, 4-5, for example. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Wisdom is found not just in the sayings, but in knowing which wisdom a saying applies to the situation you find yourself in. Are you supposed to answer a fool? or not. Wisdom says yes, and knowing when you should and when you shouldn't is what shows you are wise. So our job isn't to resolve the tension between two biblical perspectives or find their least common denominator. Our job is to hold on to both sides of any biblical tension and seek to be, well, you guessed it, faithful to complex truth. Delight is a theme that runs throughout the Bible from cover to cover. Delight is one important and central way of telling the story of salvation. But it isn't the only way. I'm concerned that other central ways of telling the story can all too easily displace delight if they haven't already. I'm concerned that in our churches and schools and small groups and family devotions, we all too easily let go of the delight side of the tension and let other important and true and central ways of talking about Jesus dominate delight. So I want to talk to you about the immense value Jesus places on you as an individual when he calls you treasured possession. 
but that important and central truth of Scripture could easily get drowned out by other important and central truths of Scripture. In order to help you hear delight clearly, I want to point out one of the faithful tensions in our biblical faith. My hope is that by holding on to that tension in Scripture, by being faithful to complex truth, you will also get a better handle on delight. That's that first section called Faithfulness to Complex Truth. So you see what I'm doing. I'm saying there's more than one thing going on, and we're going to need to hold two things at the same time. This next section that begins on page 58 is called Recognizing the Tension. I think we'll just go ahead and keep reading. That's also supposed to be on this day one reading list. Recognizing the Tension. Growing up as a Lutheran, I got pretty used to both and mentality pretty early on. Many of the theological or scriptural tensions we need to maintain were obvious. Law and gospel, sinner and saint, pepperoni and mushroom. <clears throat> but it wasn't until fairly recently that I even recognized the tension related to delight. A tension I was first taught way back in confirmation class without really being aware of it. In Luther's explanation of the first article of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I was taught that God's creative act is both free and personal. God created and still sustains me personally. God does this, quote, purely out of divine fatherly goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. Then, in his explanation of the second article of the Apostles' Creed, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who... Luther says that Jesus, quote, redeemed me, purchased, and won me from sin, death, and the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and his innocent suffering and death, that I may be his own. Do you see the tension I missed back in confirmation? I mean, which is it? Should I see myself as having no value or worthiness? Or am I so precious that Jesus would be willing to buy me back at the exorbitant price of his own suffering and death? If it were just Luther or just a couple of explanations to help parents help their kids know and follow Jesus, then I could mark up the inconsistency to the strength of Wittenberg's beer. Sorry, it's a Lutheran joke. Wittenberg is where Luther spent most of his adult life in ministry, and they did have beer. And Luther did drink it. Uh, but noticing that apparent contradiction in catechism class helps me see that same apparent contradiction in other places too. Take Isaiah, for example. Isaiah seemed to come up quite a bit in our opening exploration of the architecture of delight. On the one hand, Isaiah can write in no uncertain terms in Isaiah 64, verse 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. But on the other hand, listen to these words of God in Isaiah. This is Isaiah 43, verses 1, and then 3 to 4. But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt 
for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do you see the tension? I mean, which is it? Are we so worthless that even our best is disgusting? Or are we so precious that God would buy us back at any price? Of course, Isaiah was written over a long and varied ministry of the prophet and covers so many topics and time periods that you could reasonably wonder if it was all written by the same guy. But Isaiah isn't the only place we find a tension between our worthlessness and our immense value. Check out these two seemingly contradictory perspectives from the book of Psalms. In one Psalm of David, Psalm 139, verses 13 to 14, in one Psalm of David we get, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. In another Psalm of David, Psalm 51.5, we get almost the exact opposite. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Holding on to these two different perspectives on what human beings are like, even from the womb, is not as simple as noticing the difference between a psalm of praise and a psalm of confession. This tension between our worth and our worthlessness is too prevalent for that. Consider Jesus, who opens his Sermon on the Mount with one way of talking and ends the same sermon with a very different image for our value. Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, the people who know they have nothing of worth to offer God in spiritual matters, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs, the only way it can be as a gift. Then, two chapters later in Matthew 7, as Jesus is bringing the same Sermon of the Mount on the Mount to a close, he says, Which of you, if your son asks for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So which is it, Jesus? Do I come to God spiritually bankrupt with the empty hands of a beggar? Or do I come to God with childlike faith, with the empty hands of a darling child? Which is it, David? Am I so infected with original sin that I was corrupt even before I was born? Or am I unique and wonderful because I was handmade by God? It seems like there must be something wrong with my faith if I have to believe such contradictory things. But faithfulness to complex truth means sometimes I actually have to hold on to both sides of the tension between seemingly contradictory realities if I'm going to follow Jesus the way he intends. In this case, if we only hold on to the delight side of this tension, we risk losing a fundamental truth of our faith. Salvation is by grace alone, for Christ's sake alone, without any contribution or worthiness in me. 
That is a truth we cannot let go. But the danger on the other side is just as great. If we only hold on to the stinking sinner side of this tension, we can get forgiveness right at the expense of delight. We can affirm our sinfulness and miss our value. We can learn to accept God's grace and never experience his love. I am convinced that we need to hold on to the triune God's delight in us and our delight in the triune God just as firmly as we hold on to salvation by grace alone for Christ's sake alone. That's a really difficult thing for a Lutheran to say, but I'm pretty sure I believe it. To release that tension on either side is to risk losing the promise of the gospel that Jesus intends for you today. that Jesus intends for you to take into your week. A complex truth Jesus intends for you to hold on to tightly with both hands until Jesus himself resolves that tension in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Really important tension between our worthlessness and our great value. Uh, I guess growing up, I certainly heard more about the no merit and worthiness in me. It's not that I didn't know God delighted in me. But when you have a habit of regularly taking every biblical way of talking and kind of boiling it down to courtroom or uh, sacrifice language, that narrows the way you preach the gospel. So that's been a quite a long journey for me to begin to realize that the scripture has actually more to say. That I don't think that's not true. I think delight actually... Um, Delight works in tandem. Our great value works in tandem with our worthlessness. But you do need to have both. Hey, uh, it's it's only 8.20, and I, I see we got some people watching live. If you don't mind, I think I'd like to go ahead and, and kind of push ahead here. I know I'm, I'm uh, skipping ahead on our reading list, but I, th I think it'd be good to keep, keep us going and read about a half an hour every night and see where that gets us, okay? That's okay with you. So this now is this now is the section called Salvation in Two Acts, beginning on page 62. <clears throat> the first way of talking about what God was up to in Jesus tells the story of salvation as if it were a drama in two acts. The curtain opens on the state of fallen humanity, a humanity turned inward on itself and turned away from God. Here is where all of the no merit or worthiness in me stuff comes in. This way of telling the story deals with the reality of original sin. We, according to our sinful fallen condition, are spiritually bankrupt. We are spiritually blind, dead, and enemies of God, by nature objects of wrath. Even our most righteous acts are like filthy rags. If it were up to us to do anything on our own to earn God's favor, even something small like accepting or not rejecting the promise, then we would be lost. And that's what makes salvation by grace alone, for Christ's sake alone, so sweet. Having no good thing in me that is in my sinful nature, I must rely on an outside force to work my salvation 
for me, on my behalf. I cannot deal with my sin problem on my own, and therefore Jesus must deal with my sin for me. I cannot try hard enough or be good enough or even believe strong enough to merit forgiveness. So apart from my work and effort, Jesus merits forgiveness for me. The central movement of this drama is from wrath to delight. On our own, in our sin, we, are, we have earned God's judgment and wrath. That's act one. On the cross, Jesus takes the judgment and wrath we have deserved and gives us in exchange the delight and righteousness that belong to him. His sacrifice is our substitute, means we are saved apart from our own merits or works, and declared righteous because of what Jesus did when we believe it was done for us. Now, because of Jesus, God actually delights in us. That's act two. This way of telling the story portrays Jesus' death as a sacrifice of atonement. That is, a substitution that allows the sacrificial animal to carry away the sinner's sin, all the way to its death and the sinner to receive the unblemished status of the sacrificial animal. When John the Baptist says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we should probably expect Jesus to receive the death sentence deserved by the world and expect the world to be declared not guilty as a result. Poor, miserable sinners receive the verdict of delight because the one in whom God delights took their verdict of guilt and made it his own carrying it to the cross. This drama of salvation in two acts highlights several key aspects of the story. It accounts for original sin. It lets us be real sinners and receive real forgiveness. It makes the cross of Jesus central to the story and clearly shows our dependence on Jesus and the depth of God's unmerited grace. I can stand before the judgment seat with confidence knowing that I am sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, covered over by a robe of righteousness, so that when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. If you think about it, sprinkling something with blood seems like an odd way to make it clean. But that sacrificial blood is a sign that this person has had their sins removed. They are clean, as in forgiven, and marked as one who no longer has to fear the holy presence of a holy God. Do you remember how Passover got its name? As part of the worst and final plague, the blood of the Passover lamb was placed on the door of any Hebrew house in Egypt. And when the angel of death saw the blood of the lamb, he passed over that house. The firstborn of, in all Egypt, from the lowest slave up to Pharaoh himself, and even the cattle, died in that night. But the blood of the lamb stood as a sign that death, the natural outcome of sin, had been taken away by a substitute. The Passover lamb was not a sacrifice of atonement, but the same principle applies. The sacrifice dies in the place of the sinner, and the sinner marked by the blood of the sacrifice, goes on living. You have been marked by the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God. You can hide yourself in Christ, hide yourself behind Christ, and know that the angel of death passes over. 
In the place of what your sins have deserved, you received instead the status that only Jesus deserves. If your guilty conscience or your fear of judgment is keeping you up at night, you can run to Jesus and rely on his sacrifice and trust that while there is nothing you could ever do to help earn your salvation, there's also nothing you have to do. God delights in you for the sake of Christ. The next section is called What We Miss, Part 1. As important and comforting as that way of speaking the gospel is, if this drama of salvation in two acts is the only way we have of telling the story, we can inadvertently draw some pretty natural conclusions that just don't fit with the rest of the biblical witness. If we only know how to talk about what God does without any merit or worthiness in me, we can leave, out some, we can leave some pretty gaping holes. It's a small step from no worthiness to feeling completely worthless. I know a pastor who chooses not to use the old confession in the front of the hymnal that starts, I, a poor, miserable sinner. It's not that this pastor thinks he has earned some credit before God. It's just that after years and years of only ever being characterized as a poor, miserable sinner, after growing up in a family where the primary mode of expressing your faith was as a poor, miserable sinner, after pastoring congregations where people went out of their way to seem more poor and more miserable than the next person, my friend can't use those true words anymore without the wrong implications springing up in his heart and mind. If you think following Jesus is defined by an attitude of being poor and miserable, and that attitude shapes not just your confession of sins, but your hymns of praise and your prayer life and your church potluck and how you interact with people at work and the way you treat your family, then your experience of following Jesus will be poor and miserable. Anything not poor and miserable won't seem, be seen as following Jesus at all. I know a woman who grew up in the church and has been part of a Christian ministry her entire life who struggles with her own self-image and her own self-worth. She's been told she's worthless so many times over the years that she has started to believe it. Even when she receives a promise of love or delight from her Heavenly Father, she knows it's only, it only comes for the sake of Christ and not for her own sake. She knows because she has been repeatedly taught that even her most righteous acts are like filthy rags, so it seems natural and obvious to her that she should only ever be disgusted with whatever she does. She knows to her bones that she is a wretched sinner, not because of any particularly heinous act, but because she has heard over and over and over again that she cannot earn God's favor, that she cannot merit salvation. Whenever she checks her own price tag, she sees on that she whenever she checks her own price tag, she sees that on her own she is ugly, worthless, God's enemy, an object of wrath. And she finds herself telling herself she is ugly, worthless, and an object of wrath again and again in dark and lonely moments sometimes most days in any given week. 
the church that meant to teach this woman not to rely on her own value ended up teaching her she has no value at all. The church that meant to give my pastor friend a tool to help unburden his conscience before God instead handed a cudgel to the people around him who only had one rule of faith, poor, miserable sinner. If the only way you know the story of salvation is a drama with two acts, you can lose the immense value of the individual. You can lose the everyday delight Jesus intends as a mark of discipleship. You can even misplace the importance of creation and devalue any hope for the new creation. I mean, look where the drama of salvation in two acts begins the story. The curtain opens on the state of fallen humanity, a humanity turned inward on itself and turned away from God. Theologically, that's a fine place to start the story. It's certainly descriptive of our current experience. And it aligns with places like Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. But that's not where the story of Scripture starts. Fallen by nature is not the natural state of human beings. Original sin wasn't original. Genesis opens with God's creation and then God's verdict on creation, including humanity, and it was very good. Because we are born into a fallen humanity, we are by nature sinful and unclean. Because we are born into God's good creation, we are also fearfully and wonderfully made. The fall complicates but does not negate God's verdict of very good. Sometimes when we talk about being covered over with Christ's righteousness or, or hiding behind Jesus, it's easy to get the impression that we are all rather nondescript blobs of shapeless yuck. Even our righteous acts are filthy rags. We are universally sinful and so universally the same. The good news that those nondescript blobs of shapeless yuck are covered over with the righteousness of Jesus can fall kind of flat if we only talk about individuals as shapeless yuck. Everybody is the same in their sin seems like a theologically sound way of putting it. But if you remove sin from that sentence, you're left with everybody is the same. That is not so theologically sound. Many Christians I know want to remove sin, which is good, and then as an unintended consequence act as if everybody is the same. Not so good. You were not mass produced by God to be the same as everybody else. You are delightfully unique, hand-knit by God to be one of a kind. Yes being, over by, yes, being covered over by Christ means dying to yourself, losing your life. The old is gone, but belonging to Christ also means the new has come. As the Holy Spirit shapes you to look more and more like Jesus, you don't end up looking more and more like everybody else. You look more and more unique the more you look like Christ. That's the theology of the body. Each and every one of us members has a unique role, a unique function, a unique part to play in the community of faith. If everyone were an eye, where would the sense of taste be? If we're all only nondescript blobs of shapeless yuck, even covered with Christ, then where would the body be? But even worse than amalgamating God's unique human creations into a generic fallen humanity is the tendency for the drama and salvation in two acts to miss not just how the story starts, 
but how it ends. In this way of telling the story, Act 2 is complete when the forgiveness won by Jesus as a sacrifice in our place is delivered to sinners, when their sin is taken away, and they receive the verdict of not guilty that belongs to Christ. Once that great exchange has taken place, there's nothing more to add to the drama. That moment of salvation, that moment when your sins are replaced by the righteousness of Christ could be any number of different moments in your personal story. Depending on your theological persuasion, you could see it as the moment when you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, or when you were baptized, or when you received the Holy Spirit, or when you received the Lord's Supper, or when you committed your life to following Him. We tend to be such zero-sum people, as if... Did you hear that? See, I, I think that formulation God is not happy with. I, I think that lightning is a sure sign. Uh, we tend to be such zero-sum people as if being saved at your baptism meant you couldn't also be saved at the moment of personal conviction or vice versa. I think all of these moments and more can, should, and do count as moments of salvation in God's way of dealing with people. And the more moments of salvation, the better. But however you characterize that moment of salvation, it is a moment here in time, a present reality that leaves you with a promise of more to come, but sews up most of the loose ends after the final curtain. I am saved and forgiven, and when I die, I get to go to heaven. Sounds good, right? I suppose I do have to be somewhat careful that I don't mess it up in the meantime, and there's that pesky thing about discipling the nations, but by and large, the most important thing in the story has already happened for me. The drama of salvation in two acts starts after the fall into sin and ends in the present, with forgiveness being delivered to real sinners in real time. And that's great! Except that the hope of the Bible from cover to cover is not just that sinners will be forgiven, but that this fallen creation will be restored. Biblical hope is never focused on dying and going to heaven, though being with Jesus is good. Instead, the Bible points to something better, to a time when this fallen order is replaced with God's renewed creation, when God dwells in communion with human, human beings who don't need repentance or forgiveness any longer, when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, when we know fully even as we are fully known. When we experience God not merely as a reflection in a dull mirror, but face to face. The hope of the Bible is nothing short of taking this whole fallen mess and not only restoring it, but transforming it to be something even more glorious than it was when God declared it very good. That's the full hope of the scriptures, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That's the future of human beings who body and soul belong to Jesus, a body and soul together with Jesus in new creation glory. That's the way the story ends. And that's so much better than just dying and going to heaven. I have a friend who likes to say, heaven's great, but it's not the end of the world. I like that a lot. So on the one hand, the drama of salvation in two acts gets some really important stuff in clear ways. Uh, let me say that again. So on the one hand, the drama of salvation in two acts gets some really important stuff right 
in clear ways. If the death of Jesus on the cross is a sacrifice of atonement, then salvation happens outside of me for the sake of Christ. I am covered over with his righteousness. I never have to be good enough or pure enough or try hard enough to earn God's favor. I simply rely on Christ. I come empty and broken and trust that God places everything Jesus earned into the empty hands of this crouching beggar. Salvation is by grace through faith for Christ's sake. On the other hand, that way of telling the story only covers the time after the fall and before the resurrection of the dead, an important but relatively short chapter in the history of creation and eternity. If you only ever tell the story this way, you can lose the immense value of the unique individual. You can lose a sense of joy in following Jesus. You can even de-emphasize the inherent goodness of God's creation and lose sight of the promise that we are designed to be more than forgiven sinners. The answer to these potential deficiencies is not to ban this way of talking or discard this lens through which we can view the work of Jesus for us. Instead, we want to hold on to this one unique and valuable way of talking about who we are, while we also grasp in firm hands another complementary and somewhat contradictory way of telling the story. We need the drama of salvation in two acts, but we also need to learn how to tell the story of Scripture as a drama of salvation in three acts. We need to know the movement from wrath to delight, but we also desperately need to own down to our DNA the movement from delight to longing to even more delight. You are a poor, miserable sinner, but you are also so much more. And tomorrow night, we get to hear about so much more. Salvation in three acts is where we'll pick up tomorrow. Hey, thanks for joining me tonight. Always a pleasure to sit with you and to think of theology and talk Jesus. Have a great night. We'll see you next time at Next Step Press.